If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On this episode, we've got something a little different. Today's guest isn't a historian, but someone with a much more hands-on experience of Britain's history, stonemason Andrew Zeminski. Andrew has recently written a book chronicling his career and also investigating the creation of some of the country's most spectacular stone monuments. I went to speak to Andrew at his home and workshop in Somerset, where he even let me try my hand at some stone carving. So your new book, of course, chronicles your work as a stonemason and you've worked on some of Britain's greatest monuments. To start us off, I wonder if you could give us an idea of this historical sweep um, and range of locations and buildings that you've worked on. I've worked all across the spectrum and scope of history um, from uh, repairing a church or two churches uh, in, in the Avery Stone Circle Complex um, to the Roman Baths in Bath, uh, Salisbury Cathedral, where I did my training, hundreds and hundreds of parish churches, you know, around the southwest, and um, Georgian Bath. That's always that's always a, a, a fairly regular event for me. Um, your book is not only a historical chronicle; it's very much tied up in geography and landscape, and um, also the calendar. How do you think that working on these stone monuments gives you a different perspective on British history than one you might just get from reading facts in a history book? Because I spend my every single day completely immersed in the past, working on buildings that were built over the past 2,000 years. Um, I can't but not um, absorb the ways of old times, the way people use tools, the materials they use, the way they looked at a, a, a building. 
So as you mentioned earlier, you've worked on um, everything from Roman monuments to Georgian houses. What is involved in a conservation project or a restoration project? And what are your main concerns when you're called in on a job? My main concern is to discover what the root of the problem is, why a, why a building has started to fail in some way, what the causes of decay are. Um, and once that has been established, it's a case of maintaining as much original uh, fabric, for want of a better word, um, in situ. So w- with being a stonemason, it's basically a, a case of large-scale dentistry. Um, so I cut out anything that's uh, decaying and not required. And we fill it either with new stone um, or lime, traditional lime mortars. And so then are you using traditional tools? Yes, completely. So the tools that I use uh, on a daily basis have changed very little since Greek times, really. Um, in fact, I was at the Ashmolean Museum not so long ago, and they've got a mallet. They've got a... Um, a wooden mallet in there that is exactly the same as my nylon mallet. So that's from like 5,000 years ago. Um, and ne- uh, next to it, there is a, a set of uh, chisels. So, you know, very, very similar techniques. Even within the Roman baths in Bath, I just, you know, you can see the way uh, by looking at the surface of the stone, that the stone has been dressed in a particular way, which is exactly the same as we would do it today. If there's a uh, if there was a solar flare and there was no power next week, you know, I could just carry on and uh, carry on in the old ways. Something I found amazing in the book is the ability you had to say if you you turn up and see a monument to essentially diagnose it in some kind of Sherlock Holmes type way. At one point, you OK, I wrote this down because I thought it was interesting. You just yeah. you describe a piece of stonework as freelance pre-conquest Saxon work. How do you work those things out uh Froome, where we are today is uh, has a large network of tunnels and there is a uh, approach to the river Froome, which um, has a vaulted a vaulted tunnel um, and built into the wall of that uh is what i think is some anglo-saxon um stones so these are called long and short work um, they're built into the wall but the building that was there has been cut. So there's a, a vault has been built on the site of that building. But I can see how it's been dressed uh, with a tool called an ad. Um, uh, that, that is a type of tool that a Saxon would have used to, to create a flat surface uh, on, a, on a block of stone. Um, later times, the Normans used axes um, and chisels. Um, and you can, you know, you can tell the difference between different types of tools uh, just by looking at the surface of the stone. So it's very easy to determine. What perhaps is one of the most challenging projects you've ever had to take on in terms of conservation or restoration? Um, there are two that spring immediately to mind. Uh, one is a bridge, uh, a bridge from about 1320 um, in Bradford on Avon, just up the road in Wiltshire. Um, the problem with this was that the outer skin of the bridge, it was a pedestrian bridge, never been used for vehicular traffic. The outer skin of the bridge was literally peeling away. And um, it had been built originally with clay. They hadn't used mortar. So all the internal core was a block of stone, uh, a smear of clay, another block of stone laid laid on top. And as the, as the, the uh, front... 
uh, of the bridge had started to peel away, the bats had uh, taken up occupation. So that means we had to work very closely with the uh, ecologists to manage the bats, uh, remove the bats from their roosts, i.e. sort of exclude them at night. And we then built uh, bat boxes uh, into the into the arch of the bridge itself. So this is a this is a block of stone about this uh, about three feet by two feet, and another couple of feet deep that we that we gouged out the inside and cut some slots onto the front. So uh, you have two types of uh, roost there. You have a maternity roost and a, and a roost for the chaps to smoke cigars and you know keep away from the children. <laughs> um, so a very successful, very difficult to uh, work sympathetically with the structure and manage the wildlife expectations as well. Yeah. What was the second one you were going to say? The second one, well, we're just working on it now, and it's, uh, um, um, it's a roofed market cross in Castle Coombe in Wiltshire. So if you imagine a pyramid, so a pyramidal stone roof that ha- from the 17th century that has a medieval market cross um, thrusting up through it, through the through the apex of this pyramid. Um, and the pyramid, the four corners of the pyramid are resting on four stone piers. Um, so my uh, roofer friend who's doing the stone slating on this says it's like an elephant resting on a trunk. Um, and I think that's a very good description of this because it was the oak frame that supported the roof was absolutely shot. Nothing, had, it was full of rot it had, it had racked. It was it was quite lively and moving. So, and this is all just bearing down on these four thin piers. So we really had to think very hard about how to manage the the problems associated with that. Something that I also got from the book is the engineering capabilities of your forebears. Exact, um, for example, um, medieval church builders. The engineering involved in some of those builders is insane for the time insane yes exactly i mean the uh perpendicular vaulted roof uh of sherborne abbey is one of the wonders of the southwest of, of of britain really i mean it's equal to anything that was going on in europe at the time and what is so mind-bending about that is that the 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 this this fan vaulting was constructed as a consequence of a, a fire that had taken place. Um, and the original Norman vaulting collapsed. So they then had to reintroduce it in the latest style. So, you know, a few hundred years on from the, the Norman style. And the master mason there, for there were no architects at that time, um, integrated absolutely perfectly the perpendicular work into the Norman work. So the actual arc of the vault, if you like, matches perfectly the, the Norman work. When you see it from the top, from the actual roof structure itself, it, uh, yeah, I'm I'm completely lost. Which era's capabilities astound you the most? So, which which era do you think builders were making the most remarkable things for the for the tools that they had available? The dressing of the stonework at Stonehenge is absolutely it's. It's not just it's not just mind-boggling. It's a Gordian knot of bogglingness. It's absolutely insane how they managed to dress the the uprights, which and never mind move them from the Marlborough Downs, if indeed that's where they came from. Um, 
they use these things called malls, which are basically big, uh, big circular nodes, say some of the size of footballs, some the size of cricket balls, others the size of medicine balls. And, you know, you'd have a group of people just pounding and pounding away. And there's one stone in particular, Stone 56, which has a uh, pretty extraordinarily flat plane across its face. And there's nothing, there's nothing else being constructed like that anywhere in Europe. You know, the great puzzle, you know, why, why was Stonehenge built? That's one thing. Okay, that's, I'll leave that to the academics. But what happened to the, the builders of Stonehenge on the, on the day they put the last lintel on? You know, why, were there, why are there not Stonehenges all over the place? Where did they all go? Why did that uh, design capability just disappear? In the book, you describe making your own Stonehenge-esque monolith using Neolithic tools. Um what was that like and what did that experience teach you about the tedious. construction of... It was really tedious and the uh, pounding away. So I, I experimented with my normal chisels, which are obviously quite quick, but the sarsen stone, uh, that the main uh, ingredients, if you like, the main structure is of Stonehenge is made from, is, at, is super hard. Hardest stone known to man, as one old boy I know used to dress sarsen, put it. So is it literally a case of picking up a big node and smashing it down? Yeah. So they were pound away until, um, so you, you have, you know, that sarsen we were looking at in by the workshop. So that's got a very undulating face. It's full of holes, pockmarked. And to turn that into a perfectly flat plane, um, absolutely beggar's belief. I don't know. Uh, you know, they just pounded and pounded away. And I think that, you know, that it must have been a huge community effort uh, families, uh, like I say, communities, the social structure to achieve the work of that must have been immense. It wasn't just like three or four people pounding away. There would have been hundreds and hundreds because the Sarsen sandstone is so unforgiving. Uh, but the other thing is they would be creating enormous amounts of silica sand and they would have been breathing it in all, the whole time. And one of the things we look out for as masons is, especially if you work sandstone, um, is the risk of silicosis. So you wear full-on masks and all that, which obviously they didn't have then. So they they would have been they would have been dying of this condition fairly soon after the conclusion of their appointed task. Um, so yeah, brutal, brutal and short. I think your description of Stonehenge is very evocative that you give in the book. Why do you think that it continues to capture everybody's imagination so much? It's the, I think you've answered it yourself. It's why, isn't it? So what you know when when you go there for solstice, uh, be it summer or midwinter, the range of people that you meet is just is is so interesting. You know, from the from the the, the druids and the pagan community. Uh, you know, there's people from the MOD there. There's the the heritage people. There's the archaeologists. It's just people. It's you know, tourists from all around the world. People are just drawn there. It's just because, like I was saying earlier, it's that there is Stonehenge and there's nothing else. There are other uh, Bronze Age and Neolithic monuments of uh, greater magnitude, you know, the Karnak Rose and uh, um, stone circles in the Orkneys, you know, that sort of thing. But... Uh, there's, there's nothing that's been designed with architecture in mind from that time. And that's, 
It's been designed with architectural details such as uh, mortise and tenon joints to hold it all together. It's so supremely sophisticated. Um, and it and it actually fits, you know. <laughs> it's tongue the so the the lintels that go around in the circle are tongue grooved at each end, so they can't sort of move out of place. You know, these things weigh 20 tons each, they're not going to fall off lightly. So that's an, an unnecessary extra piece of work. Well, they think that it's uh again paying tribute to the carpenters. It's it wasn't masons who did it. It was carpenters who adapted their skills. So mortise and tenon joints are obviously carpentry joints, aren't they? And tongue and groove joints are carpentry joints as well. So there was a, a carpenter's ethic at work at Stonehenge. Moving forward probably a few hundred, if not thousands, years, yeah. what kind of role was a stonemason? How would a stonemason work? How was it viewed in society? Um, well, as... As in any social structure, there are layers of social acceptability within stonemasonry. So obviously laborers are at the bottom of the pile, so they'd be mixing the mortar and transporting it up onto the scaffold. Uh, the, the fixers, they, they would be perhaps next. Um, the carvers were on the, on the layer above them, so they'd be in the uh, workshop. It's called the banker, the banker workshop, um, carving away the parts that would be taken up to the scaffold uh, and the sculptors would be at the top of the tree so it's quite a, quite a broad range of um society there and uh, you know it was the it was the sculptors uh you had to be a sculptor to become a master really uh that that were at the top yeah so master masons could did earn very very well and they were in you know they're in real demand um throughout you know, there were booms, building booms throughout the medieval period. Like there's one after the Black Death. All of a sudden, pe people had dis disposable cash. People were bequeathing money to build churches when they died. Um, so Master Masons were in big demand, uh, as were roving teams of uh, journeymen, which is pretty much what we do now. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We worked on this timber frame house um, on the edge of the Savanac Forest. It, it was a proper, it was a place that uh, I'm, I'm slightly uneasy talking about because it, it was, it had a, it had a vibe to it, you know. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. 
That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This is perhaps a slightly silly question, but if you could go back in time um, and be a fly on the wall for one big build, what would you pick? Stonehenge, obviously. What what are they thinking? Who, I'd like to see who's in charge there. Was it the master stone basher who's calling the shots? Who's Who designed it? It just came from nowhere. I've, I've no idea. It would be great to go back to Roman Bath and see how they constructed the uh, temple that was dedicated to Sulis Minerva. So Sulis was the local Celtic deity. And I'd like to see what the interaction was between the, the Celts and the Romans in building, what, which is basically a, 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 a building from Rome, uh, right on the fringes of empire. It'd be very interesting to see how, where, where did they get the, where did the people come from who built it? You know, did they ship in labour? Did they train labour? Uh, how do they know how to use bathstone from scratch? You know, uh, Celts had a tradition of building in wood, not uh, not stone. But of course, you worked on on Roman on the Roman temple in Bath. Yes. What are the hallmarks of Roman building in Britain? Well, um, in our neck of the woods, it's uh, villas. Everyone knows about them. We've worked on a few villas, consolidating the the ruins that have been uncovered before they are um, covered over again. Um, we, we've done a lot of work within the Roman baths itself. And I say a, a, a career highlight for me was working on the famous Gorgon pediment of the um, Temple to Sulis Minerva. And what was so strange about this thing is this, that the central deity is just not of, it's not of this world. It's a Gorgon. It's a, it's a, it's a figure with... Um, Snakes, serpents, wings coming out of its its flaming hair, but the way the way the deity looks at you with its frontal gaze, with its sort of beetle brow, is very very Celtic. So it's a strange conflation of two um, cultures, two cultures, two worlds coming together. And they and they whoever designed that was was a genius. And I think that's you know that's pulling together a lot of political requirements at that time as well, you know. Your point there about different cultural influences is interesting because before we turned the microphones on, we were talking about how if you look at the stone um, building in Britain, there are so many different external influences on it. Could you talk a bit about that? Every single day that I work in a, any, any type of church, be it a country church, be it a cathedral, I, I can see the hand of Islam at work. It, that can be seen to influence window tracery. It can seem to be uh, to influence flying buttresses, uh, 
squinches that support the corner of the tower at uh, Salisbury Cathedral. So a squinch is basically an arch built into a corner. And that's that's a purely Islamic uh, piece of engineering to support a dome. But in, at Salisbury, instead of a dome, you've got, you've got a spire, haven't you? Um, Christopher Wren was a great fan of Saracenic architecture, as he put it. And you know what? If you look at St. Paul's Cathedral, I, I, I don't know about you, but I see, I, see a, I see a dome and two minarets out the front. And the engineering of architecture that's supporting it is Gothic in origin, so they were flying buttresses. So St. Paul's Cathedral, even though it's a Baroque, it's an English Baroque building, is, uh, it's about as Islamic... <laughs> A structure that is our nation's church, as as you get really. So, speaking of St Paul's, there obviously you've worked on some massive, famous, spectacular buildings. But if we put that to one side for a second, what are some of your personal favourites? It's not just about the cutting stones and fixing stones. It's about the environment and the landscape and the cast of characters that every single parish church comes with so um, for example at old dilton church which is not too far from here a church in the care of the church's conservation trust redundant church um where we've worked quite a few times over the years that that that, uh, that had uh, a, a resident um homeless guy living in there we'd go on we, we would go in in the morning there'd be a hedgehog wrapped in clay on the bench next to him i mean he was he was um he was an eccentric character, I think it's fair to say, but he had been visiting that place for many, many years. What was so nice about Old Dilton was that we had to drop the floor levels in the in uh, under the box pews because uh, there was a problem with um, damp damp rot. Uh, so we had to drop the floor levels, and we we sieved everything out, and it was. It was like the mudlarking, but we were coming up with so much stuff, pins and pins and pins and uh, coins, half groats in the time of King Charles. Uh, gosh, I could go on. Bits of clay pipe, you know. Um, candle holders made of like plug, just plugs of mud with a candle-sized indent in with a bit of wax in the bottom. And there's lots of interesting graffiti there as well on the, on the box pews themselves. So the graffiti of the, of the owner of the pew because box pews are generally owned privately by the family um, and of local kids in the 19th century. And, of course, from from the Second World War, there's lots of American airmen have gone around writing their names. Um, one, uh, I think there's one, it's the 4th of June, 1944, and uh, just before D-Day, so, you know. I think that's the thing in your book that comes up again and again. It's, it's partly about the architecture and the stonemasonry and the artistry of it, but it's as much about the human stories of these buildings and these monuments. Well, it's like working people don't write, do they? People, working people certainly don't write history books, and that was something that sort of motivated me. And I just wanted to record what my impressions were of, you know, how how people manage materials, just practical things like scaffolding. You know, it's like we just we just take this for granted. But you know, in the old days, they'd have lashed together bits of old oak, and you know, they'd have had uh, woven hazel. Uh, um, fence panels as their, you know, as, as their scaffold planks, if you like. So, yeah. When you talk about that, it does kind of bring it home that it would have been quite a risky job in the yeah. past. Yeah. People, I, I know that the uh, master mason at Chartres fell off the scaffold 
um, and conducted uh, Shark Cathedral conducted affairs from from the ground, <laughs> look looking up. So it was not uncommon for for people to fall to their picking up on your on your point about everything that you uncovered or under the floors of. Uh, old Dilton. Yeah, yes. of Old Dilton. Yeah. Um, you've also made some slightly more sinister discoveries of that nature. We worked on this timber frame house um, on the edge of the Savanac Forest and everything we lifted had uh, had something underneath it. So there would be a there would be a shoe, there would be uh, tiny shells, there would be there was a uh, a cat um, under the hearth. Um, there was graffiti all around the doors. It's like this place had been assailed by, or they thought they were being assailed by evil spirits. Um, this this was a building that hadn't really been improved uh, at all. So the, the original fabric was still there. I mean, there, there were burn marks, like taper marks, as they call them, around the fireplace. Um, uh, daisy wheels cut, cut in around the fireplace and the doors. Um, and that has to ward off uh, those <laughs> that may come. It, it was a proper, it was a place that um, I'm, I'm slightly uneasy talking about because it, it was, it had a, it had a vibe to it, you know. Is that quite common to find, um, not necessarily superstitious things, but things within walls or when you're working on buildings? Yes, really common. Old coins, um, skulls of farm animals, um, there was one place you worked on. I, I don't know what this means, but there were a load of broken bottles that were hanging by their necks, black light, seventeenth, 18th century bottles hanging in a row from, from one of the beams in the roof. If you go around Britain and you get hands-on with its stone monuments, what do you think you can learn or what impression do you get of British history from doing that? Uh, it's breadth of peoples is what I take from that. Everywhere you go, you can see that foreign people have had a role to play in the building of Britain. And I, as I said earlier, I see that everywhere from the, from the hand of Islam uh, on, onwards through to, to Rome and the Normans. People have been coming uh, from everywhere to build Britain. So that's what I would like to convey. My final question is, if you could encourage all the listeners to this, to seek out, I'm going to allow you three because one is too cruel. Three examples of stonework in Britain, what would you recommend? On the midsummer solstice evening, so before sunrise, as the sun goes down, go and look at stone 56 at Stonehenge and you will see the sun set over one of the marker stones, which is an outlying stone. Um, if you cast an eye down the flat plane of stone 56, you will see the sunset on on that uh, marker stone. That's, you know, obviously the point that the sun sets and then rises the following morning, which is what we all, you know, think of with Stonehenge. I think that the uh, sunset was as important as the sunrise. So I'd say stone 56, just for the, the, the fact they managed to get that, 30 or 40 tonne stone up in position so it acts as a sort of astronomical instrument that's still doing its job today and it's absolutely spot on. Great. Uh, so that's that's one. 
uh, fan vaulting at Sherbourne Abbey. The bravado of it, the the boldness, uh, and the fact that perpendicular architecture is uh, is a strangely British thing. It's an economy in uh, its execution uh, that you didn't have in the uh, decorated Gothic period beforehand, and um, that's as a that's as a response to the uh, Black Death and uh, stonemasons were working. Uh, less individually, they're working in shops, and they were just they were churning out linear meters of stuff. So it's a very different uh, philosophy to the the decorated masons who were more freehand and more lively, and there was more robust carving. Um, but if if uh, for a third choice, uh, I'd go to the chapter house at Southall Cathedral, which uh, to look at the uh, ecological carving. I suppose the stone carving of the chapter house is is beyond compare. Um, so literally the masons would go out into the field, they would get leaves from every single type of adjacent tree and copy carve them. And the, the copy carving of the leaves is absolutely stupendous. It lifts the spirits, makes you, makes you happy to be alive when, you, when one goes there. That was Andrew Zeminski. His book, The Stonemason, A History of Building Britain, is out now, published by John Murray. A version of my interview with Andrew also appears in the March issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now, with features on Henry V, The Dark Ages, The Glencoe Massacre, A Georgian Terrorist Plot, and much more. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when journalist Hadley Freeman will be discussing her memoir tracing the story of her family during the Second World War. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.